But actually, I have to do something really important. Okay. Good afternoon, my lady. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. It is so lovely to speak with you this evening, my lady. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cringy, but it's also so satisfying. It's It's so satisfying because now it's true. Everyone, we have news. (laughs) Tracy and I are officially Mm -hmm. ladies, Mm -hmm. as in Lord or Lady. We purchased (laughs) a small, small plot of land that maybe we could possibly stand on as long as we don't move in Scotland. I think we could even sit with our legs out if we really wanted to. I think we went. We went all out. <laughs> we did the Highland Titles thing that was so popular this holiday season where you could purchase land to help them preserve more property on a beautiful reserve. But then <laughs> they sort of capitalized in the most fun, silly way on the fact that someone who owns land in Scotland is legally entitled to the title of Laird. Mm-hmm. And truly, Tracy and I have never dropped money so fast. So fast? We we actually bought, I think what we bought was technically a couple's plot because we wanted to guarantee that our land would be right next to each other. Oh, it was 100% a couple's <laughs> plot because you get a bigger plot and they, I don't want my Lairddom to be far away from yours. Although, here's the one benefit if it is far away. We could put on a Regency era gown and walk from my land to your land as though we're in the middle of Pride and Prejudice. The fog is rolling in. There are hills (laughs) everywhere. There's greenery and mountains. That is the one benefit. But, you know, if we share the land, we can sit on our own land together and then go on that walk together. So I think we made the right call is what I'm saying. If we're ever fighting, I am going to conquer your land so fast. <gasps> I am just going to come for you. <laughs> <laughs> the the daydreams, the silly daydreams, just never ending. Highland titles. I love you. Oh, oh, I love you. I love it. It's inching me closer and closer to buying a ball gown I don't need on the internet. I've already made a playlist for us that's inspired by the idea of running around the Highland Castle we don't own, but, you know, <laughs> want to have. It, the daydreams never end. They're just, we're, we're, I want swords. I want more swords is the next thing. So I have this, I'm not even going to call it a daydream because it's actually a plan for us. Okay. <laughs> the plan is that once the world opens up to travel again and it's safe, we're going to go on our world vacation where we hit all those spots from stories we've told we're gonna go on that vampire tour Mm -hmm. (laughs) we i have a shockingly large collection of ball gowns so i will hook us up we will wear ball gowns and then i'm gonna find a poly pocket sized castle (sighs) so we can take it to our land (laughs) put a castle there at least temporarily (laughs) Oh, my God. That's the dream. Oh, on that tour, can we also go to one of those historical balls where you actually dress up and participate in a ball at a castle? 
Absolutely. And that okay. happens, well, they do that in Austria every winter. In That's certain- the big one. There's a ton all over Europe in different castles. Well, if you would just come out to L.A., there's a big ball every year in downtown L.A. where people dress up and it's fantasy themed. It's the Labyrinth of Jareth. Everybody wears masks. Oh, you know I know what it is. You know I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) You know I know. I want to go so bad. As soon as I can, I will. But then then I'll, okay, so then I'll support the economy by buying a ball gown and flying and visiting you (laughs) and going to the Labyrinth Ball. In conclusion, Tracy and I are lady and lady of the willing and fable land, and you may bend the knee at your leisure. We'll wait. Yes, you too. <laughs> Unless you're driving. <laughs> uh, in that case, you can you can p- uh, pull over and park and then get out and bend the knee towards your car, and we'll know. We'll know. If you don't feel like bending the knee, you may also tithe. Uh, We do not accept firstborn children or children of any kind, actually, but we do accept snacks. We accept snacks. And another way you can support us instead of a tithe is buying our merch at willingandfable.com slash merch or finding us on Patreon. Or you can just subscribe to us or listen to our episodes. No matter how you support us, we appreciate you. We are so proud to have you as our vassals. So, Truly. <laughs> is it a cult, not a cult, or are they vassals? We'll need we'll need people in the Discord to decide. Yeah, yeah. Anyone on the Discord can vote on it. Get on it, fam, patrons. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about what we're really here to talk about. Hi, I am Lady Rowan Hall. And I am Lady Tracy Harrison. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Thank you so much for joining us for season two. Mm-hmm. We did it. We did a whole season one. And we have a whole season two planned for y'all. Oh, planning it was so much fun. I We have some episodes we are super excited about. I mean, we're excited about all of them, but there are some we were like, How early can we squeak these in? We're so excited. I would say that some episodes I'm excited about in advance and some episodes I'm not excited about until I find the story that fits the theme, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are some episodes we look at it on our plan and we're like, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there because big yikes. (laughs) (laughs) And then you find the perfect story and it's like, the fates and the stars align and it's the most fun episode. And then there are some where we're like, I am so excited to do this episode. And you get into it and you're like, it is so much more complex than I ever imagined it would be. And now I am overwhelmed. You never know. The stars align for me for this episode. And I uh, may or may not have completely switched my topic, undid my work at midnight last night. (laughs) Oh, my God. Continuing the trend of late night research. I don't mean to be like that. It's just that when the perfect story comes to you and your brain immediately starts working, you just got to run with it. I love it. I'm so excited because I feel like this week the story that I did kind of slapped me in the face. I came in. I came in so hot. I came in like, I'm going to find all this information. I'm so excited to dig into it. And then I like (laughs) stuck my shovel into the dirt and just hit rock. And there's like, (laughs) this is the weirdest metaphor, but like it is, this is just, 
deep as a puddle is what I'm saying in terms of how deep dive I can go into this. And that was a, a shock. You did text me about that stress. Yeah. Yeah, because I was mad. I was really <laughs> mad at what I discovered. <laughs> so what is your topic, Trace? Well, this week, as you can probably tell by the title of the episode, we are covering what we lovingly call our big murder boys. These are evil murdery creatures or people in mythology. Uh, we came up with this episode because I wanted to cover the specific topic that I'm covering. Yeah, and where did the big murder boys come from? Because this specific episode has been on our calendar for, wow, I think maybe since the beginning of the podcast for over a year. Yeah, it came <sighs> out of just, um, I remember this, it came out of the two of us chatting and me talking about, so I'll, I'll spill the beans. I am covering Chernabog. Mm. And uh, I we were talking and I said, I want to do an episode on Chernabog. And we were just joking back and forth. And I was like, but I love I love him. He's my big murder boy. And so then we made an entire episode about big murder boys. Can you explain what a boy is, B-O-I, for anyone that is wondering if we put a typo in our title? <laughs> I don't know that I can. I am notoriously bad at explaining anything pop culture reference. Uh, Rowan actually specifically called me to explain what oo-woo is to her mother. And <laughs> I don't think I did a good job. I just said oo-woo a lot of times. <laughs> I would say, so when you when I see boys, B-O-I-S, it doesn't mean masculine necessarily. It's just like, there you, it, it, I, I, I don't know. Rowan, I it don't does, know. It does sit in this very intriguing pocket of possibly having masculine energy but not necessarily always having masculine energy what does urban dictionary say let's find out boy this is what you say when someone says slash does something stupid no 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 that's not it that's not it it's a nicer than that i think it originally came Oh, right. By the time it got to me, it had to be a nice thing. <laughs> to me, now it's just like a cute way to reference a group. That's how I think of it. Mm -hmm. I think of boy as specifically relating to the idea of sweetness. Yeah. Or gentleness, which is why the idea of a big murder boy is so lovely because it's like a chibi of a big, yes. scary character. <laughs> yes, he's got an axe, but he's also got a flower crown. It's 2021. You can have both. In conclusion, BOI is a gender-neutral term. I also, though, did males, did men for my yeah. topic. I think it is fairly masculine. I think it's just like, when I think of, for, for ours, when we say big murder boys, I think it's boys, but I think it's a very soft masculinity when I type something as B-O-I. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'll refer to myself as a boy. Like, B-O-I, I think that's hilarious to do. Like, I'm just a dumb boy. Or like, I'm a, <laughs> yes, cute, yes. I'm a cute boy today. <laughs> like, I think that's so fun. In conclusion, as you can tell from this very long description, Tracy and I have only a loose grasp of the English language. <laughs> language is fluid and ever-changing, and so is gender, so play with both. That's what I have to say. 
Sign sealed delivered. Let's go. All right. So <laughs> my topic this week is Chernabog, and I decided to go with my story first and then talk to you about the history of Chernabog. Okay. All right. Are you ready for my villain monologue? Picturing a scary figure with a flower crown. Yes, I'm ready. Yeah, he's he's got a, an axe dripping with blood, a, a t-shirt that's like kind of open, but it's stained with blood. And you're like, am I into it? Am I not? I don't know. You know that, like, that vibe? Yes. Okay. All right. People always think they're so different. They spend all of their time and energy and money on making sure everyone knows just how special they are. They pride themselves on their uniqueness. Entire cultures fight each other over differences that are as vast as a crack in the sidewalk. You're not different. You all bleed the same. You all die the same. I would know. I've killed millions of you. There is one thing, one thing that makes you special. The only thing in this entire world that makes a person unique is the way that they scream. You want to hear a symphony? Listen to the sound of hundreds or even thousands of humans screaming in agony all at once. It's magnificent. Some will be soft and torturously slow while others bellow out as if trying to rip their lungs out of their chest by sheer force of sound alone. Low moans play the bass line to the tenor of shrieks and cries. All are different. All are playing together in perfect harmony. That, that is what makes you special. The way you respond to pure terror and agony is the only thing in this world that is uniquely you. But who am I, you ask yourself? I am the darkness that encroaches each night. I am the very fear that trickles down your spine slowly and agonizingly until you beg for salvation. I am the black god of evil incarnate. I am Chernabog. The universe is not responsible for the darkness that slinks across this world. I am responsible. When you cry out in the night in anger and agony, it is upon my joyful ears that your screams fall. I listen with a brimming grin to each and every weep, wail, and moan that reaches my ears. I don't want you to love me. I don't want you to want me. I want you to fear me. I want my very name to drip from your lips like blood from an open wound. I want the sound of my being to shiver down your spine in an electric shock of pain. I want you to hate me. So keep spitting my name into a bowl as though it could warn me away. I love the challenge. I crave the excuse to unleash my wrath upon this world. For every time you spat my name into the dirt, I will crush a skull under my boot. Never forget, you are nothing to me. You want my brother instead. I have a brother. Or at the very least, I think I have a brother. I am told that he is good and kind and full of light. I've never met him. I know him well. 
I cannot picture his face, and yet it is burned into my mind's eye. We are separate. We are one. I am darkness, and he is light. You love him. You worship him. You want him around you. You pray to him for his benevolent kindness, and he responds to each shout of joy and distant laugh on the wind. He is a gentle caress on the cheek, a soft sigh from a lover. He is all that is fair and kind on this earth. I hate my brother. I am my brother. I will end my brother. But that is not for you to know. That is not for you to see. That is not for you. Instead, I want you to take a moment and close your eyes and imagine the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Think about what it is that would truly break your soul. Take a second to really picture it in your mind. What does it feel like? Does it hurt? Is there a sinking deep in your gut? Has the breath been ripped out of your lungs? Is your heart racing in your chest? Can you feel that? It is me. I am there in that pain. I am the hand clawing at your throat and stealing your voice. I am the salt that stings your tears. I am the ache that takes root deep inside of you and rears its head when you least expect it. That sudden gut punch you feel when you are truly taken aback is the feeling of my fist gleefully crashing into you. I revel in your shock and I thrive on your agony. There are some out there who chase that darkness, those who look upon me and think I am to be worshipped or revered. There are a foolish few who think that if they sink into the blackness of pain, that they will eventually come out the other side. But there is no other side. The only way out is to fight. And I'm not interested in those who do not want to fight the darkness. Pain is only satisfying when you want to fight back. I want a challenge. So do not disappoint me. Do not look upon me as though I am anything but the blemish I wish to be upon this world. I am not to be looked upon with kind eyes. I am not interested in your kindness. I'm not interested in you beyond your screams and your agony. I do not want to be redeemed. I do not want to be changed. I'm not here to indulge in your wants or your needs. I am here for myself. I am here to satisfy the only thing that I desire, and what I desire is to make the world hurt. I won't stop. I won't stop until everyone and everything bleeds and screams and begs me to make it end. And when the whole world is on its knees before me, praying for mercy, I will not give it. Do you still want to love the villain? Do you still ache for the darkness you see before you? Well, just know you have never loved a villain like me. I am Chernobog, 
I am the black god of evil, and I will destroy you. Chernabog, thou dost protest too much. (laughs) He's a bad boy. (laughs) I love that. Well, in my limited knowledge of Chernabog, I love that he... In most tellings is going, you know, I don't care about humans at all. I never have. I never will. I only want to kill you. Come here. I only want to kill you. I don't care about you. Come here. (laughs) (laughs) He's the ultimate neg. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do, I I started writing my story and I, I just have been so amused by the the trend going around online right now of people kind of like bullying you into taking care of yourself or people really diving into why everyone loves the villain. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do a kind of villain monologue that's like, you love me. I'm the villain. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna be nothing but mean to you, nothing but pushing you away. And at the end, for some reason, you're still gonna kind of be interested. A YA protagonist would be all over that. All over it because they think they can change him. (laughs) (laughs) But that is a thing in many stories about gods. Gods saying, I don't care about humans, but through their actions, it is clear that not only do they care about humans, they rely on them. Yeah. And it is that power of belief, I think, that exists Mm -hmm. in so many pantheons. Tell me... Is the references that you put into music, symphony, harmony, is that in reference to Fantasia? That is such a good call out. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't um, originally intentionally. And then um, so I I had one line in there about symphony. And then I was like, well, I got to play with this more now because there's like two things Chernabog is ever known for. And one of them is Fantasia take so much credit for it because i thought that was that was a beautiful easter egg okay so i will take full credit for that i appreciate you noticing that and that Mm -hmm. ties into my very first sentence of the history which is when people think about turnabog they most likely think of one of two things if they've even heard his name at all and the first is that he is the winged creature that appears in the night on bald mountain sequence in disney's fantasia hmm Second is that he is the sledgehammer-wielding god played by Peter Stormare in American Gods. Interesting bit of trivia. Did you know that Walt Disney said that Chernabog in Fantasia was modeled after Bela Lugosi, who played Dracula? (laughs) I did not know that. That is so cool. It's a fact that is debated because some people say that the artists who were working on that character said, we don't like what he did. We're just going to have someone redo it. But mm. it's pretty, it's pretty accepted that Bela Lugosi is Chernabog. That's so cool. Oh, I love that so much. That's, sorry, sorry. Continue. No, you're good. <laughs> That's like the main thing he's known for aside from he is in Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy fourteen as a boss. And uh, there are more articles about the Disney version of Chernabog than the actual Slavic god himself. Are you shocked? Because I'm not. No, No, that (laughs) happens to us so often. 
The amount of time that I spend trying to wade through the deluge of Greek mythology and Disney is staggering. It's It's staggering. staggering. And it doesn't help that historically there isn't actually a ton of sources for him. So even when I was able to find various sources, they all kind of said the same things over and over and over again. Oral tradition? Is it primarily? So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. So first mentioned by Helmold in the Chronicus Laborum, Chernabog is one part of a duo of gods. His brother, Belabog, is the god of light and goodness, while Chernabog represents evil and darkness. His name literally means black god. Chernabog is responsible for everything dark and bad in the world. Everything from death to winter to nighttime. He is most prominent in wintertime, while in the spring he swaps places with his brother or counterpart, Belabog, who is the white god of light. Okay, I have to ask. Mm -hmm. I'm so... (laughs) Go ahead. Was Belabog the name and influence for Beelzebub? I don't think so. Okay. I... Would have to go back through my Beelzebub notes, but I, I remember it was um, Bezelbub to Beelzebub. I remember the Be- whole... Yeah, there was like Bellabug to Bezelbug to Beelzebub, but that was a totally different area of the world. Not that that means it can't influence each other, but I don't think Bellabug, especially given who, who Bellabug is and what he represents would have influenced Beelzebub. There just aren't that many sounds that human mouths can make. <laughs> we are limited <laughs> in our phonemes. <laughs> Is that even the right word for that? Phonemes? I felt like I sounded really smart for a second, and then I had a moment of panic. Podcasting is just thinking you sound smart and then panicking that you don't. Yes. It's thinking you are smart and then realizing you've read so many things that you've never said out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I spend so much time Googling words because I think I know what they mean, but I'm Mm -hmm. not confident enough until I Google it to put it in my own writing. Mm -hmm. And I'm often right, but the doubt is there. Oh, it's so real. It's so real. All right. According to God Checker, Chernabog, quote, causes calamity and disaster, bringing bad luck and misfortune wherever he turns. There is no hidden agenda. He just enjoys being a black-hearted villain. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nerdist describes him thusly. Chernabog is known for being the god of misfortune and bad luck, the god of death, darkness, and destruction. He was said to be intentionally malicious and a corrupter of everything pleasant. He is the type of guy who would knock the ice cream off the cone in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a jerk. He's just... He's just an asshole. Okay, go with me on this journey. I'm excited for this journey. Let's take that first step, baby. You know how, as a human that is trying to be a good human, if you do something and then go, oh my God, that was mean of me, you have guilt. And there's this journey of trying to learn and be better. Mm Mm-hmm. The idea then is that if someone is evil, they no longer have that guilt because their whole goal is evil. But what if it's opposite? 
where Chernobog's goal is evil, and if he accidentally does something nice, he's like, oh my god, what if that person just thinks I'm nice? Oh my god. I can't fix it. And what if no matter how much I apologize, they think I'm a good person? That is so (laughs) funny. I think, is there a story that's like that somewhere? Where I'm sure there is. There's no such thing as an original idea. (laughs) It makes me think of, um, what is the, it's the Neil Gaiman show, Good Omens. Um, oh, the, yeah. The book and, and subsequently the show where they're trying to balance out <laughs> the, the, good and the, the good and the evil influence. And I just like to imagine them being like, oh, oh whoops. <laughs> was a little bit too nice there. A little bit too evil there. So I, I have to look up. That's such a funny concept. I really love that. Catholic level guilt, but about... Being, being nice. perceived as good. <laughs> there is, I've definitely, that is like tickling something in my brain of a character who is so afraid of being perceived as good. It'll come to you at 3 a.m. Always. It always <laughs> will. Okay. So Helmold, who is the one who wrote about Chernobog first. He was a German monk and chronicler who created his, quote, Chronicle of the Slavs. He was born in 1120 and died in 1177. He was a Saxon historian and a priest at Bossau near Pion. During his mission to Christianize Slavic people, he wrote, quote, The Slavs, too, have a strange delusion. At their feast and carousals, they pass about a bowl over which they utter words. I should not say of consecration, but of execration in the name of the gods of the good one as well as the bad one, professing that all propitious fortune is arranged by the good god, adverse by the bad god. Hence also in their language they call the bad god Diabol or Chernobok, that is, the black god. That is translated in the reading in the Middle Ages, sources from Europe, Byzantium, and the Islamic world. That's like the one big, one of two big quotes you will find when looking up information on Chernobog. Wow. We've made so much out of so little historical yes, information. Exactly. That's exactly what happened with this with this idea of this good and bad duo. So, though Chernobog and his counterpart are rarely mentioned after this description, there is a later source written 400 years after the first one. In 1530, Johann Linder, a Dominican monk from Perna, wrote about these two gods. Though he lived near the Lusatian region, it's likely he only used written sources and monastic stories, which made his account unreliable even for the time. Other 16th century historians, such as Georg Fabricus and Petrus Albinus, believe that even though he had many varied sources, he was not critical about which sources he should use. Thus, they deemed his accounts to be of little note. Which I find fascinating that even back then, they're like, you're just taking everything and putting it in here. You're not even remotely double-checking. That happens all the time right now. People say things and everyone goes, oh, wow, you super made that up. And other people go, nope, this is fact now. Mm-hmm. And, and back, but even back then, they're like, okay, the, the, you crossed the line, but we're not... We're not taking this seriously. Like, yeah, you've asked a lot of people and a lot of people have told you stuff. 
doesn't mean any of them are telling you the truth. In 1538, Thomas Cantzow, a Pomeranian chronicler, wrote in his highly creatively titled Chronicle of Pomerania, quote, I have heretofore related all manner of faithlessness and idolatry in which they have engaged before the time of the German Empire. Earlier yet, their ways are said to have been even more pagan. They placed their kings and lords who ruled well above the gods and honored the said men, as gods, after their death. In addition, they worshipped the sun and moon and lastly two gods whom they venerated above all other gods. One of them they called Beelbug, that is the white god. Him they held for a good god. The other they called Zernabug, that is the black god. Him they held for a god who did harm. Therefore, they honored Beelbug because he did them good and so that he might continue to do them good. Zernabug, on the other hand, they honored so he should not harm them, and they appeased the said Zernabug by sacrificing people, for they believed that there was no better way of assuaging him than with human blood, which is actually true if, if only they had seen it in the right light, that Zernabug seeks nothing other than the death of a man's body and soul. There is so much going on in that quote. And the whole time you were saying it, I was picturing a little fluffy Pomeranian <laughs> saying those words. A little Pomeranian with a little bow tie and glasses because he's a scholar. And bloody feet. Probably. Like walking through blood. <laughs> like, hello, I've recently come from a sacrifice that horrifies me. It horrifies me, <laughs> but not for the reasons they thought. <laughs> wow, that's... That's the other big quote you get. That is more or less, more or less, that is it on where we find sources for Turnabug. There's a couple more I'll get into, but that where he talks about there being the good God that they honored and that they thought would be really helpful. And then there was Turnabug that they either sacrificed people towards or um, prayed that he would not harm them. I just love that this man is going well they killed people and that's a bummer but it makes sense because all their souls are gonna rot in hell anyway yeah he's basically like yeah he's he's i think he's trying to be like well yeah it is what he wants because he's basically the devil and the devil wants you to lose your soul yeah <laughs> wow okay <laughs> yep so 12 years after that was published, in 1550, Sebastian Munster describes in his Cosmographia Universalis a harvest ritual associated with these two gods. Quote, in general, they worshipped two gods, namely Belbuck and Jernabuck, as if a white and a black god, a good and an evil genius, god and Satan as the source of good and evil, end quote. No one person can decide how these <laughs> names are spelled or pronounced. <laughs> I want to know if that's regional dialects, people saying them a little differently, or if that's just people who don't speak the language kind of key smashing with their quill to get the word. <laughs> I just laughed so hard into my microphone, I blew out my own ears. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the idea of key smashing with a quill. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I do think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, a little bit of whitewashing thrown in there. Why not? Just that's always around. Uh, when people try to pretend that early Christianity was so monotheistic, I just want to go back to texts like this and say, you remember when God and Satan were always said in the same sentence? Yeah, and when they were compared to a duo of gods. Yeah. As being the same thing. Yes, I completely agree. They're skipping through the tulips, all linked arm and arm. <laughs> arm and arm. Ooh, I want to see art of that. Nowadays, it is believed that Kantzow and Munster use the same source for their information, which is possibly from the archive of the Abbey of Bielbaki as there are other sources who seem to quote or paraphrase the same text. That's as much as I could find on that, though. So even that is dubious. <sighs> okay. Later on in the 17th century, Abraham Frenzel also mentioned Chernobog in a list of Lusatian gods. But given that at this point, Lusatian paganism was nearly extinct, and about half the gods he listed were of Prussian origin, he was kind of just written <laughs> off. So, <laughs> over and over and over and over again, as I was researching this, it was like, hey, someone has a thought. Someone says, this is who Chernobog is. This is the story. And someone else goes, no. But again, it's that mixing of historians who don't care to dig into the research and ideas from around the world mixing and blending as people move around the world. Mm-hmm. Much like researching Chernobog today, there seems to be one or two singular pools of information from which all sources drink. The source of the information here is both as wide and as deep as a puddle. <laughs> to quote our dear friend Wikipedia, there is no consensus among researchers on the authenticity of the cult of Chernobog and Belabog. Some researchers believe that both gods are Helmholtz's invention some assume the possibility of the existence of these gods. Some assume that Chernobog and Belabog are nicknames for other gods. Some authors attempted to prove the cult of Chernobog by the means of names of the mountains. Chernobog and Bielbo in Upper Lusatia, where the gods were supposed to be worshipped, but the names were most likely created in modern times because of the popularity of the culture and the gods in that region. All of this is at the very least disappointing. I would not be shocked if it turned out that these gods were 100% made up so that monks who were trying to Christianize an area could be like, ah, oh, these pagan savages who sacrifice people. Yeah. And honestly, if they were made up by one guy... I don't mind that. <laughs> I think that's fine. I think it's just as interesting the same way a character written by one person is very interesting, but it's the it's the not knowing, it's the the possibility of a monk creating it for the purpose of making people seem like they needed to be educated or converted to Christianity and slowly history getting really muddy. That's the frustrating part. Yeah, stories of all kinds have value. We just would love to know which kind of story this is. Yes. 
Neil Gaiman takes a really interesting approach to Chernobyl in his story American Gods, in which gods are real and live among us and are only as powerful as they are worshipped. An article by Radio Times quotes the Chronica Slavorum and notes that Chernobog's counterpart is never mentioned. So here's a quote from that article. The good god is never mentioned, much less named as white god. Bielabog's existence as part of Slavic mythology is extremely sketchy. Was there really a dualistic structure? That's something Gaiman evidently thought about because in the novel, Chernobog wonders aloud if he and his long-lost brother, Bielabog, are actually the same person. As spring comes around in the novel, the grouchy Chernobog lightens up considerably. I thought that was so cool. I loved that little tidbit that, in reality, the two are the same, and they're not even really aware of it, which is why in my story I had that whole area of I, I know my brother, I don't know my brother, I've seen him, I've never seen him, I am him, I hate him, duality. American Gods is certainly not one of my favorite Neil Gaiman books by any stretch of the imagination, but... Really? Yes. Interesting. Reading it frustrated me very much just because uh, in, I am a lover of Alice in Wonderland, intriguingly, but I usually don't get on board for Alice in Wonderland type structures where the lead is just there to pull you through an interesting world. Mm. And that's personal okay. preference. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that... The structure of American gods in which gods are only as powerful as belief and worship they have lives rent-free in my head, influences Mm -hmm. a lot of how I think about the world and culture, and despite my personal preference frustration with that book, I have recommended it to numerous people. (laughs) Yes, I... I love, um, I really love the show. I love the way it's Mm -hmm. translated a lot of the story. Um, I am going to come in with a hot take. Okay. So, so get ready for my hot take. I think Neil Gaiman is an exceptional storyteller. He is not a novelist I super enjoy reading. And what I mean by that is that I love stories that get deeply into the mind of the character. I love stories that feel like you are inside of a world and things are happening very slowly and unfolding and you're enveloped in it. And the way Neil Gaiman writes stories, I think, is the most beautiful modern author's version of an epic bedtime fantasy, of this high-level 30,000-foot view of stories and of, like, he tells these big stories and I think they play out beautifully in, if you can do a TV show with them, or um, if you sit at night and want like a bedtime story, I think he is exceptional at that. But his style of writing is just a step back removed from the deep character internal monologue study that I really love and thrive on, that I've always found it one step too far removed, which is why when he worked with Terry Pratchett, and they wrote Good Omens, it was everything I ever wanted in a story. It's so good and so funny. You know, it was a hot take, but I'm going to jump on that bandwagon 100% and say I completely agree. 
And you know I'm the person who will go on an internal monologue for a year. So Yeah. I just always read his stories and and came out loving the ideas and feeling like I was left a little wanting with the story. I would say loving the ideas, but not loving the characters. I can love the world that they live in, but I don't have that compassion for them. Contrarily, and perhaps because of his style and its use in this series, the Sandman series, I think is his best work and it's a graphic novel and 100% it should live there because you also have an illustrator helping you find character details. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming to our TED talk. (laughs) This was our, our, our Neil Gaiman TED talk. So I, I, my last thing are arguably Neil Gaiman writes a more fleshed out version of Chernabog in his story, American Gods than history gives us. So I love that pop culture has latched on to this objectively terrible god and his need to just be shitty. But uh, <laughs> but that does make it seem like he was at some point hugely popular in his time, which it kind of seems like he never really was. So in this case, it's modern authors such as Neil Gaiman or Naomi Novik in her book Spinning Silver. More so than it is history that provides... Wow, so unlike you. I I know, it hurt me to write, but (laughs) history just left me wanting more. Just a little taste, please. History just left me wanting more. Well, at some point, this current jello mold of time is going to be history. So someone in the future will be able to say history provides. See, there we go. (laughs) Eventually, history, time is eternal and history provides. (laughs) Rowan, tell me about your big murder boy. Tracy, I'm giddy. I am giddy (laughs) about this story. You guys know that this episode was crafted around Tracy's desire. And despite the fact that it has been on the docket for a long time, I had a god picked out. And it turns out that god that I picked that I won't mention because we do have to do an episode on him... He's not murdery enough for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So I, I hunted, I looked, I was yelling at the computer, you know, come on, be evil. Give me that, (laughs) give me that killing. But no. So at the 11th hour, I changed my tune and for our episode on Big Murder Boys, I am presenting the tale of Smock. Vavelski, the Vavel Dragon, or Cracks Dragon. Oh my god, I actually haven't heard of this, I don't think. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to start off by saying, who is a bigger, badder murder boy than a dragon? Just, just molder on that for a moment. I know that there are tons of different stories about dragons, but in the larger human American consciousness, they're pretty big, they're pretty bad, and they pretty murder. And they are pretty, pretty boys. They're pretty boys. And they'll do a murder. They'll do a murder real good. (laughs) 
<laughs> so there are more than a few versions of this Polish dragon tale. I'm going to start with my adaptation, and then we'll dive into the history. I'm also going to apologize for my pronunciation of Polish words. I watch so many videos, but that doesn't mean my mouth is going to do it. A quick overview of dragons, in case you're someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about because you're not addicted to D&D like Tracy and I are. <laughs> Wikipedia says, quote, A dragon is a large, serpentine, legendary creature that appears in the folklore of many cultures around the world. Beliefs about dragons vary considerably through regions, but dragons in Western cultures since the High Middle Ages have often been depicted as winged, horned, four-legged, and capable of breathing fire. Dragons in Eastern cultures are usually depicted as wingless, four-legged, serpentine creatures with above-average intelligence. End quote. Dragons are basically dinosaurs that often come with fire-breathing and flying and sometimes other magic. They're super punk rock. <laughs> and I know you're asking, were dragons inspired by dinosaur fossils? Were dragons inspired by dinosaur fossils? Tracy, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, you always ask the right questions. Oh, absolutely anytime. You just, you just let me know, babe. To quote an article <laughs> by Bob Strauss for ThoughtCo, on this very subject, the word dragon comes from the Greek drakon, which means serpent or water snake. And in fact, the earliest mythological dragons resemble snakes more than they do dinosaurs. In yet another Thought Co. article, the lovely Bob Strauss continues, It is telling, though, how many dinosaurs and prehistoric reptiles reference dragons in their names— either with the Greek root Draco or the Chinese root Long. Dragons may not be inspired by dinosaurs, but paleontologists are certainly inspired by dragons. That is the twist I didn't know I needed. That is so adorable. Nerdy paleontologists being inspired by dragons. I am ridiculously proud that I managed to link two quotes from the same writer from different articles and i probably shouldn't have called that out if i wanted to be cool but there it is <laughs> yeah sometimes you gotta call it out so that everyone knows just exactly how cool you are <laughs> <laughs> so the long and short of it is we have no way of being sure but it is very likely that fossils of saber-toothed tigers giant sloths various dinosaurs or other mammalian megafauna of the cenozoic era inspired dragon mythology. In fact, in Vavel Cathedral, where once the dragon of my story roamed, there still remain bones said to belong to the mystical beast. Atlas Obscura says, quote, they are chained together in a random jumble, hanging high above the main doors. And it's true, the bones are hanging like a really odd mobile or wind chime, high above the archway, far from any tourists. <laughs> the internet seems to tell me that those bones are likely from a whale and or a mammoth. But there was an interesting find in 2005 that may explain the origins of the Vavel dragon. 
In 2005, the bones of a remarkably well-preserved archosaur were discovered. That was one of, if not the largest predator in the area during the late Jurassic period, coming in at about 16 to 19 feet of bipedal muscle. Scientists from the Swedish Uppsala University tested fossilized dinosaur poop from an archosaur. <laughs> and they just. Dis- you learn so much from poop. It's crazy. I mean, the whole planet is just poop, just layers of different organisms, waste products. You know, you're not wrong, but you learn so much from it. You learn about daily lives, you learn about diets. Anyway, my mom purchased some dinosaur poop once. I brought it in for show and tell in kindergarten. (laughs) I'm not surprised by anything that you just said. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so these Swedish scientists test the dinosaur poop from the archosaur, and they discovered that they displayed osteophagus feeding behaviors, meaning our critter fed on bones to replenish minerals it needed, and not just any bones, big Bad murder boy was known to eat very, very large predators, including but not limited to sharks. Oh my God. And those sharks, you know, they were scary sharks. They were the big, scary sharks from back then. If you were wondering why this area believed there was a dragon, it is very likely that it was because they found fossils in the dirt, very likely an archosaur. And there is a theory that this is what occurred in numerous places around the world because there are fossils everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There's no way of proving it really. So I feel like the scientists just, you know, like you said, satisfied their geeky love and named Mm -hmm. the dinosaurs after the dragons a little bit. Okay, so my story. Remember, as I tell it, that we have big murder boy dragon and also small boy human. (laughs) Okay. Once upon a time, in the mythical mists of history, back when science was called magic and magic was called heresy, there was a loud and boisterous king named Krakus. When he was a younger, brawnier man, he led his people across the land to settle upon a beautiful high hill, now named for his glory. Krakow grew to be a wealthy and prosperous place to live. The farms flourished in the fertile soil by the Vistula River. The weekend market bustled with merchants that traveled from far and wide. There were even regular burnings of local witches to keep the peasants entertained. Over many a dinner party, the king would be heard to say, I don't like to brag, but I certainly like to boast. My kingdom on the hill is the richest in the land, and nothing will lay us low. Now, if Krakus knew he was in a fairy tale, he might not have said those foolish words. If this were a simple history book, he would have been correct. A castle on a hill was much easier to defend than one on a plain. Though he was a fat old man now, he'd established a vast army and an array of allies. No man would be foolish enough to test him. 
but Krakus was not in a history book, and the villain that would defy his decree was no man. You see, the reason the Vavel Castle, with its high towers and sprawling masonry, was able to perch on such a high hill was because that hill and the caverns beneath were built by the burrowing of a dragon. Traditional dragon mythology may describe these horrific, scaly beasties as animals with no sense and an unending hunger for virgins. I will tell you right here and now that these are some of the most intelligent creatures any folk hero is likely to meet. And if you were a gigantic lizard that had to consume tons and tons of meat each day, you would like snacking on virgins as well. Boy or girl, they're like the veal of human livestock. That was how the Vavil dragon viewed the growing town that appeared on his hill, like a charming little farm raising all sorts of yummy little bites for him to swoop down and snack upon. Occasionally he would breathe a bit of fire or lay waste to a few buildings. Dragons live for a very long time, you know, and they must do something to keep themselves entertained. But, for the most part, he would simply dip a claw into the growing city and enjoy whatever he caught. King Krakus knew that a city of humans could not survive alongside a dragon for very long. The beast was the size of five Vavel castles put together. Its wingspan could block out the sun. But the king was also a proud and foolish man. Rather than moving the people who relied on his better judgment to a safer place, he decided to hold a daughter contest. A princess match? A tournament for the virgin. He was still workshopping the name, but the idea was this. Valorous knights of near and far could come and fight the dragon. The first man to kill the monstrosity won his daughter Vonda's hand in marriage. The king was keen on this idea for two reasons. One, the prize attracted a particular brand of man who was brave enough to run into a dragon's den, but foolish enough to believe that marrying a princess gave him any kind of monarchical power. No one ever read the government documents nailed up in the square or came to the open to the public hearings of various decrees. Two, his daughter was 13 now. And she was going through what the queen lovingly called an awkward phase. King Krakus wasn't so sure. Vonda's skin was now oily and bumpy, and she was somehow both cripplingly shy and loudly opinionated. He was beginning to worry that he wouldn't be able to pawn his daughter off on another 50-year-old noble of the region before the circumstance got worse. So turning her into a prize for a dragon slaying seemed a delightful alternative. It made getting rid of her seem... fancy. And now that he had two sons, she really didn't matter much anyway. Perhaps unsurprisingly, not one of the dozens upon dozens of shining knights and handsome princes succeeded. As far as the dragon was concerned, they were 
hors d'oeuvres that were served with a shiny toothpick. By the time Scuba the Shoemaker entered the scene, the entrance to the Vavil Dragon's lair was so littered with human bones, the ground itself looked covered in snow. Scuba was a young boy, all of 12 years, and he apprenticed with the local shoemaker. While Scuba was known for his neat work, and it was generally assumed that he would one day take over the title of shoemaker, in truth, he was a scientist. You cannot always refer to people by their day job, you know. So, Scuba spent his days crafting shoes and his nights in his small workroom lodgings, attempting to create a definitive set of symbols, even a table of the purest form of a myriad of substances. It had taken him a year of eating grains and milk every morning, but eventually Scuba had saved up enough box coupons to send for a layman's first alchemy set. It was from his experiments with this set that Scuba concocted a plan. A plan that he did not tell the king, because there hadn't been a witch burning in Krakow in a while, and Scuba wanted very much to live long enough to grow out of his own awkward phase. So, one day, Scuba, all four feet of him, walked up to the mouth of the dragon's cave with a small army of older teenage boys dragging the carcasses of seven sheep behind them. Scuba wasn't strong enough to get them there himself, you see, and nothing quite bestows a young man with bragging rights like walking to the mouth of a dragon's cave and living to tell the tale. So, it was easy for him to draft a crew of tagalongs. Each of the seven sheep was laid out before Scuba, who was now alone with the army of teens crouching some distance away, The livestock were painted with a bright and colorful swirling pattern. The young scientist had no idea how the dragon's vision worked. He planned to inspect the eyeballs after the creature was dead, so he'd used a myriad of colors and shapes across the wool, just in case. Uh, Great dragon of Vavel, I've... Come, I have come to bring you an offering. Scuba hoped that when this story was told in the future, no one would mention that his voice cracked. The dragon appeared without a moment's hesitation. Every ancient and powerful creature loves an offering. Its massive head snaked out from the cave so quickly that Scuba stumbled back, and by the time it had moved all the way out into the daylight, the boy had made a rough calculation that he was about the size of one of the dragon's canine teeth. Great, great dragon, I have captured the power of fire as a mortal human, and I wish to bring this gift to you. The creature turned one massive eye to the boy and blinked as if to say, go on. Moving as quickly as he could manage, Scuba pulled a handful of something from his pocket and threw it at the ground before him with a flourish. 
The objects hit the dirt in a series of miniature sparking pops that the boy hoped would look like magic conjured from his very hands. Scuba would go on to name the small bundles of rag and flammable powder snapdragons, and the sale of these and similar fiery spectacles would make him a fortune. Anyway, the dragon was sufficiently impressed. He hadn't paid much attention to the goings-on of the small species in centuries and was not particularly aware of their clever human advancements. Had the dragon devoted more time to the care and keeping of his livestock, he might be alive today. After Scuba explained that the magical, colorful sheep laid before the great and powerful beast of the hill granted humans this fiery power, the dragon gobbled them up in one swift bite, just as the child hoped he would. The logic of a dragon was not unlike the logic of his king, Krakus. If someone has power, I will take it. Well, the dead sheep were stuffed with as much sulfur as the beginner scientist could get his hands on. So it burned the dragon's throat all the way down. The creature was confused, as his own fire did not burn him when he breathed it. So when it grew more and more painful inside his stomach, the dragon of Vavel flew, shrieking and spitting all the way to drink from the Vistula River. The dragon thrashed and clawed at his own body, swallowing mouthfuls of water to quench the heat inside of him. He screamed until the peasants of Krakow began to fear they would go deaf from the wailing. The river was nearly drunk dry by the dragon, who did not know that the chemical heat he'd consumed could not be doused. Then, the dragon of Vavel exploded. The explosion was so massive that even villagers a fortnight's ride away had blood and guts raining down on them for the remainder of that night. This horrifyingly bloody weather started a series of exorcisms and witch hunts that would ravage the nearby countryside for almost a decade. But the people of Krakow rejoiced. They carried Scuba around on their shoulders as they paraded through the blood-soaked streets all the way up to the castle gates. They cheered and chanted while King Krakus gave a speech. The king somehow took credit for the boy scientist's brilliance at the same time condemning the use of magic. It was all very odd to Scuba, and it became very uncomfortable when Vonda a full year older than him and a proper teenager, was presented like a prize heifer on market day. They both cast each other the knowing look that only those suffering through puberty can manage. It said, We will tear this society to the ground, and we will begin by playing music they hate and wearing clothes they do not like. While the adults of Krakow threw the party of the century, the children went off to play with Vonda's dolls together. And by play with her dolls, Vonda meant that they should throw them from the castle's highest tower and measure which characteristics caused some to fall faster than others. Vonda was just on the cusp of discovering gravity, 
and not even the utter obliteration of a dragon could waylay her quest. For his part, Scuba was beginning to feel the first twinges of a crush. All was well in the land of Krakow. King Krakus would go on, as kings did, loudly proclaiming his own might until some younger ruler came along and conquered him. Vonda and Scuba would grow up to live very happily in a marriage of convenience. His wife's royal title helped Scuba find the first investors in his works of fire business. Scuba's inherent maleness allowed Vonda to publish more than a few scientific papers under his name. It was a necessity that, though utterly ridiculous, kept her from being burned at the stake, which they both appreciated. The once powerful dragon of Vavel, who in his lifetime had, like any predator, hunted prey in his territory with no particular malice, only the very natural need to eat and survive, well, he stayed vaporized. In fact, portions of his detonated carcass would float around in the stratosphere, carried by various weather phenomena for centuries, only to rain down as the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. But that's a story for another day. Isn't science magical? I love that story so much. That's the perfect example of the kind of story I want just read to me as I'm falling asleep. (laughs) I'm so curious, and I'm sure you'll get into it, how much of that was based on versions of, like, the story that was told or how much of it was completely your own creation. The dragon eating sulfur stuffed in livestock and exploding is canon. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. Okay, okay, so talk to me about all that. (laughs) Okay, so there are numerous versions of this story. The oldest known telling was for the Polish Chronicle during the 13th century. It was attributed to the Bishop of Krakow, famed historian Vincenti Kadlubik. The bishop wrote that the dragon terrorized the area during King Krakus's reign during the 8th century, though... For the record, the reality of this king, like many rulers who are linked to dragons, lives somewhere in the annals of time between true history and fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, in the early tale, the dragon demanded sacrifices of cattle, or else he would feast upon peasants and nobles alike. So the king tasked his sons, Lech and Krakus II, to kill the dragon— They used calf skins with sulfur sewn inside to trick the mythical beast, who exploded. But then (laughs) they argued about who would take credit for the victory and thus take the throne. Lech killed his younger brother and blamed the dragon for his death, but he was later stripped of his crown and exiled from the country when the secret was revealed. The city of Krakow was thus named after the younger murdered brother in this story. Okay. In the 15th century, a different version credited the original King Krakus for the slaying of the dragon. Again, the dragon still explodes every time Mm -hmm. chemicals make (laughs) the dragon (laughs) explode. (laughs) 
The one true point in this canon is that chemicals make the dragon explode. <laughs> not a sentence I expected to say today, but not one I'm disappointed at having said. It's the reason I picked this story, because can you imagine? Can you imagine? I can't stop imagining Rowan. I think that's the problem. <laughs> I love it. And... I didn't get into it because it wasn't the tone of that particular story. And I normally go there, but this time I didn't. But imagine how much gunk would be on that tiny 12-year-old boy. Oh, my God. He would be... Oh, I'm just imagining all the different TV shows I've seen where they just cover someone in head to toe in gore. All you see are his little 12-year-old boy eyes blinking. It would be very likely... Assuming he survived the explosion blast, that he would be suffocated under the weight of that much dragon meat. Oh, yeah. Like the, I love it. You called out the, the mystery meat shower that happened. Oh, in Kentucky? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for anyone who doesn't know, at one point in 1876, there was a mystery meat shower Uh Someone saved some of it in a jar. Basically, science has decided that some of it was... Um, colonies of uh, bacteria. Yes, thank you. Colonies of bacteria yeah. that formed these cute little gelatinous, horrifying things. And then some mm-hmm. of it was just a uh, vulture vomit. Mm-hmm. And I think that they actually found the lungs of a baby in some of the vulture That's vomit. That's horrible. That's nice and horrible. I knew the vulture vomit part. I wasn't as sure about the bacteria. But yeah, basically it was the way that the, the vulture vomit got whipped up by the winds created a <laughs> terrible meat storm and that's a history fact for it i just couldn't (laughs) resist no and the closest thing we have to a dragon explosion is when sometimes whale carcasses explode because of the buildup of gas yeah i also learned about it in i don't remember what story i was researching that there's mystery goo that washes up on shore that's called i think it's just called glob Okay. It's just, they don't know what it is. It's just mystery goo. I hate it's that. It's big whale size mystery I hate mystery that. <laughs> I am way more okay with a rain of dragon explosion coming down on me than mystery goo. But you, the, does it help that you are not as likely to come into contact with ocean mystery goo as with falling dragon meat? Right. Me as Rowan Hall in 2021 is way more likely to come in contact with dragon meat falling from the sky (laughs) than me swimming in the ocean and encountering a goo I cannot name. You are correct, Tracy Harrison. Honestly, though, I don't think I'm wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) Okay, so... Mystery goo aside, 15th century, they credited the slaying to the king. In the 16th century, the young shoemaker Scuba is brought into the tale as the hero. Uh, Over time, the young peasant boy has also gotten the name of Krak, thus attributing Mm. the city's name to the heroic boy who was then made king because he was so heroic. Thus, King Krakus comes of the dragon slaying, not vice versa. Of course, the princess comes into the fairy tale version later as princess's hands in marriage are wont to do. 
some versions of this story highlight that the dragon tries to drink water from the river and actually it drinks so much water that contributes to the explosion. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I just read this story and immediately imagined a cute little peasant boy with a chemistry set. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. I love the the little anachronistic, like, he got his coupons and he got his chemistry set. Yes. (laughs) Some historians link this tale with a Saint Jacob who slayed a dragon. You might remember our guest Tim Black discussed a St. George dragon slayer in our episode 17, Scotch Whiskey. That saint, who might be linked to this saint, might actually have been a Christianization of the Greek mythological figure Perseus. So the dragon lore and the Christianization of it runs real deep. And oh. Always. And this is just one small corner of the dragon-infested globe. Speaking of different kinds of dragons, my story had a single-headed, four-legged dragon that is often described in the story today and is based on an illustration that is very popular. But traditionally, the Vavel dragon had six heads, though that's sometimes mistaken for six legs. Oh, I like to imagine both. All of it. Give me all of it. All the limbs. And I like to also imagine that they thought it had six heads because they found multiple fossil heads and just Mm -hmm. kept adding Mm -hmm. it to one creature instead of assuming (laughs) that maybe there were more than one. (laughs) No, it's only one. They only found one body, six heads. That's it. It's it's clear. It's clear. It's cut and dry. So based on the theme of Tracy and I traveling the globe based on our stories, Vavel, Poland is a place you can absolutely visit today. The Vavel Castle is real and is now a museum, and it still sits atop the ancient hilly home of the dragon from our tale. The outer walls of the castle bear the plaque. Krakus, Prince of Poland, ruled between the years 730 and 750. This is the site of the cavern in which, having slewn a wild dragon, then settling on the Vavel, he founded the city of Krakow. The specification of wild dragon says to me that there are domesticated dragons. And I need to know more. I need to know if that's what it is implying or if it's just a uh, translation. Oh, no. I mean, get out of here with that logic. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I think it's so cool that it definitely means there was domestic dragons. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Would the city of Krakow please write to us immediately? (laughs) Yeah. The whole city, please. (laughs) About your domesticated Uh, dragons. Please do. Unofficial letterhead. We really like it. Thank you very much. We're ladies now, so we demand it. This plaque references a cavern under the hill that tourists can take a spiral staircase into. To quote the Poland is awesome blog, in <laughs> I know how could I not? In the 16th and 17th century, part of the cave was used as a storage room and banquet hall for a tavern and public house built by the river. 
1843, the space was opened up for sightseeing. So the idea of a dragon lair cave as a banquet hall? Oh, the dream, right? The actual dream. It's so good. The only thing better is if it would be like a um, a big banquet hall ballroom combo and you could like run through the castle and run in the dragon lair while dancing with your enemy with a dagger strapped to your thigh. I'm going to raise you one better. Domesticated dragons like puppies also attend this ball. Can they fit? How many can we fit? Well, we don't necessarily have a definitive size on the dragons of this particular lore. That one dragon was massive, but it also maybe had more or less heads. So do we really know? True. Like we could True. get we the Pomeranian know. of dragons in here. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> Discover Krakow, a lovely travel website for the area, would like everyone to know, quote, Apart from the legend, there is one other token of the dragon, the Vavel dragon statue. It stands on the Vavel Hill next to the Vistula River. It was designed by Bronislaw Kromi and completed in 1969. In 1972, people decided to transport it to its current location, which is at the foot of the Vavel Hill in Krakow, in front of the Vavel Dragon's Den. The statue is a standing dragon that is 20 feet tall and, most importantly, it breathes real fire. It's possible due to its use of natural gas. You can ask the dragon to breathe fire. You just need to send it a text message. End quote. The idea of texting a dragon, I think it broke me. (laughs) (laughs) Standing in front of a 20-foot dragon statue, cool, asking it to breathe fire. I'm with that. Having it have a way to then breathe fire, I'm good. For some reason, it's... All you got to do is text it. That gets me. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer about it, and I'm certainly not trying to be a purist. I'm not anti-texting. But I don't think that dragons should have to bear the yoke of text messaging. (laughs) It's truly a curse. Clearly, they have the technology to automate the breathing fire. Like, clearly, you know, the text triggers something, automates the breathing fire. How cool would it be? And they, I feel like they missed an opportunity here. How cool would it be if you instead, like, paid money or somehow got a gold coin? Uh-huh. And gave it to the dragon for its dragon horn. And gave it to the dragon. Yes. And then it breathed fire through whatever that same automated mechanism in that is triggered by the physical sending in a coin through something. Right, or if you stand in front of the dragon in this on this beautiful decorated brick whatever and then it's a pressure sent like give me give me good science. Make me feel magic. I I felt like they they brought the magic so close together and then they just killed it with send it a text. Well, you know, it was that mix of horrifying technology that did make me want to turn my story into kind of this odd allegory for (laughs) science actually happening during 1730 
So, or sorry, yeah, pardon me. Love that. Seven thirty, not even seventeen thirty. Seven thirty. I love that for them. I love that journey for them. Uh, very good. <laughs> yeah, it's uh. There you have it. We got big murder boy. We also, in my story, have small murder boy. Small murder boy. We do have small murder boy. And I love small murder science boy. I think it's so cool how different our two murder boys were. And <laughs> so how different, different. History, <laughs> how different history came through on that. Could we have told our stories more differently? Absolutely not. No, no. Yeah, no, we, um, I went full villain monologue and you went classic fairy tale folktale. Plus science. Oh, yeah, plus science, obviously. Always. Always. I think we did it. <laughs> I think we've talked about big, bad, fancy murder boys today. We're back, y'all. We are back. Oh, my gosh, we are back. We're back. Episode one, Big Murder Boys, baby. We did it. We can't talk. We can't reveal episodes that we have coming up for the season, can we? No. No. We'll keep it a surprise. Okay. So just be excited, everyone, because we certainly are. Be excited. So ordered by your ladies. <laughs> yes. Your, the ladies demand it. Your lady demands. So, my lady, why don't you tell me something good? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I get You guys don't understand how often Rowan and I do that to each other. <laughs> it is our new favorite. We paid actual money for that joke. We did. And we should say that it is because of the, you know, the milady genre of men. The men that'll mm -hmm. like run up to open the door for you all creepy and be like milady and then like sleaze all over you. Don't call me milady. Yeah. Just open the door. Or don't. Mm -hmm. I don't care. <laughs> so we we wanted to recapture Milady. Yeah, we're taking back Milady. Um, one of my favorite jokes that I think it's Casey and I always do. It's just one of my favorite jokes is is doing the like Milady, but for random objects or things. Mm -hmm. So if, if someone opens the door, like if if someone opened the door for me, I'd be like Mador. <laughs> and like tilt your head as if you're like tilting your fedora. <laughs> Mador. Oh. <laughs> like, my coffee. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> well, the jokes, they are going to keep coming. But sorry, sorry, sorry. Will you ask Milady. me again? But the same way that you did. Milady, would you please doth tell me <laughs> something thine good? Yes, I shall. <laughs> <laughs> my something good this week is a silly happenstance that happened between the two of us. So, okay. To celebrate our 1 year podcast anniversary, surviving a year, mm -hmm. my secret gift goal was going to be that if we did it, I was going to get Tracy these tarot cards that we have both been lusting after. They are Yes. You can find them on the 13th Press. We have them linked on our Instagram. They're called the Marigold Tarot. We live and die by this imagery. So I got them for Tracy. I'm so glad they were as beautiful as we thought they would be. Oh, even more so. I had to sit on that knowledge for an uncomfortably <laughs> long amount of time, which I'm very bad at. When I gave them to her, Tracy gave me the dream reaction, which, you know, people's reactions to gift giving are not obligatorily part of the gift giving. But Tracy just 
does this lovely thing when she really likes a gift where she almost (laughs) doesn't react. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God you know me well enough to know, like, when I'm so overwhelmed by emotion, I just sink (laughs) into it. It, Because I always fear that people will think I'm not appreciative. And I just sit there making noises quietly. It looks like your human-shaped soul is wriggling around inside of your body (laughs) separate from your body. That's what it feels like. (laughs) And joy is so hard to come by in this current state of the world. So that was just... Tracy internally wriggling with joy was quite lovely for me. And then... It was so unexpected. And then, you little squiggle, you wily minx, as you call me, she sent me the same tarot Uh cards so that when I got back to L.A., they were, like, basically waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And conveniently, I was by myself when I opened them because I didn't know what they were. And so, I kid you not, Oh, God. Okay. I kid you not. I was so tired from traveling and so stressed that I just held them against my chest and laid on my dirty bedroom floor. (laughs) (laughs) I so relate to that energy. (laughs) So. I'm so glad they made you happy. It was really, it was a fun time of tarot giving. And yeah, again, we can't recommend them highly enough. Marigold tarot. Splurge for the gold leaf on the the edges. Get get the ones with the gold on the edge. It's worth it, I promise. (laughs) All right. Milady, wilt thou tell me something lovely? Good? What's the word for good? Good, but with an E on the end. Oh, okay. Let me do that again. (laughs) Milady. Mm-hmm. Wilt thou tell me something good? <laughs> <laughs> I shall. My something good. Uh, two two things, really. Um, one, I just got a package today that I ordered because I was so jealous of what I sent you for Christmas that I ordered <laughs> my own stuff from Old Growth Alchemy. <laughs> Oh, we both do that. I had to stop myself from getting the tarot cards for myself. Oh, my God. We always do that. I would have been so mad if you got those tarot cards for yourself. So I got um, tea from them. So we already have the antiquarian tea because Jamie got it. So I got their um, fireside. I I have that one. It's so good. Yes. Yeah. So I just got it. I haven't made it yet. And then I got a reliquary. So it's uh, supposed to make you more like in tune with nature. And it's just this beautiful glass jar with plants and animal teeth in it and then it's sealed with a wax seal on top which there's I'm teeth 100% in it about there's teeth in it okay but at what point <laughs> i'm so bad do you smash it to get to the teeth never is that a never you can open it i mean it's got a twisting cap you could open oh you um, can open it yeah the plants in it I'll, I'll post a picture on the instagram the plants in it are really prickly looking i don't know what they are mm. um so I got that, and then I got a pin for my jacket. So I love my stuff from them. I'm just super into anything that's, like, kitschy and witchy, you know? <gasps> Give me that Kitschy vibe. and witchy. I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I like the vibe, <laughs> but I hate the, the language of that. <laughs> the other something good is um, over the time that Ron and I took off, I finished Gideon the Ninth. Uh, and no, stop. No, stop. I'm, I'm almost done. I'm not going to spoil done. anything. Okay. 
Oh my God. Well, after this, after we record, we have to talk about where you are. Um, it was just mind boggling. Tamsin Muir, who writes it, gives the middle finger to any writing convention <laughs> you've ever seen in the best way possible. Um, reading it is great. I'm also listening to the audiobook. I can switch between from my Kindle to the audio book and I'm reading the second one. And it's just like all I think about. I just have, it's so good, you guys. If you have not read Gideon the Ninth and then the sequel, Harrow the Ninth, check it out. It is so in the best way, probably unlike anything. But you have read. to say the tagline that's on the front of the book Lesbian Necromancers in Space. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the but isn't it lesbian necromancers in space explore a gothic castle oh, a gothic, yeah like a gothic uh oh i have to i don't have a basically guys near it's me. the words are lesbian goth space goth <laughs> yes that's it, it's <laughs> It is a, it's actually like, I think technically a space opera is the genre. It's like a yeah, science definitely. fantasy space opera. And it's about necromancers. It's so funny. You guys, it is so funny. I think that's what drew me in is you love all the characters. It's so funny and witty and the world building is incredible. So that was amazing. And I'm enjoying drinking tea and listening slash reading. But most importantly, we will have it on our recommendations page on our website for you. So you don't have to hunt too hard to acquire it. No, it actually should already be there from when Tim recommended it. Because Tim oh, right. recommended it as his something good. Great. And tiny plug, if you have a local bookstore, always order books. Get your books from your local bookstore. Extra tiny plug. If you don't know how to get to a local bookstore, you can go to bookshop.com. And mm -hmm. they will, it's a, it's a way to buy books online, but the, I think it's about 10% of your proceeds go towards supporting local bookstores. And they pick the books from non-Amazon bookstores. Will you put that link on the top of our book recommendations page so people can just go there? Will do. Yeah, I just bought myself over $100 worth of books over the last few days because I'm on TikTok all the time and TikTok keeps telling me about books I should read. I love and that. And I want to build a library. I love that because you get the book recommendations from TikTok and then you filter them again. So I only get the creme de la creme of what you and I both <laughs> like. It's <Yes>. awesome. <laughs> so the uh, uh, over the Christmas holidays, my family and I did book giving as our mm -hmm. kind of thing this year. And I bought so many books from thrift books. Mm. Oh my gosh, if you guys like used books and frankly how could you not? I got multiple hundreds of dollars worth of books for less than $100. It was amazing. Yeah. If you like I love it. uh old sci-fi, which I do, it's a great place to mm -hmm. go if you like reference books. Tracy and I use a lot of symbol books and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's a great place to get those for a less spicy price. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Oh my god, yes. We did not mean to t turn this into book corner. We are so happy to be back for season two. Thank you guys for sticking with us, coming back again, and <laughs> thank you so much for listening. And remember, Stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? 
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.